Hello, my beauty. How are you? I was just thinking to myself that I should move because I can hear birds tweeting in the background. And I thought, absolutely not. Just going to let those birds sing on. And if you hear one, added bonus. There are certain sounds that are definitely worth editing out. I just don't think that's one of them. Um, I hope you're really well. How are you? Another week, another fresh new one of these little bad boys. Now, look, I've got myself in a bit of a muddle. Uh, apologies, but last week I talked about the ne- next podcast, Passion Pod 96, which we are at today, being from a charity founder who's a guy who set up a charity that supports young people uh, to do what they love, right up our street, brilliant. Now, look, that is coming, but it's not this week, because this week... Our passion pod is courtesy of a man who is about to go and climb K2. In fact, he set off today, as you do, casual Monday. That just makes my Monday to-do list just pale into insignificance. Uh, but, you know, it's all relative. Jake Mayer is our passion pod number 96. He's an adventurer, as I say. Mountains are definitely a speciality. Youngest Briton to climb Everest. And now off to climb K2 with some terrifying stats. I'm not going to lie. These stats of success on climbing K2 are pretty eye-opening. Just not your average day job, is it? Let's be honest. Super inspiring way to be making a living. So feast your ears. You're listening to Passion Pods number 96 with Jake Mayer. And we're up a mountain at the moment. <laughs> Haven't had one of those before. I love the image of you when you meet someone being like, oh, so, you know, what do you do for a living? You're like, I climb loads of mountains. Look, give us in a nutshell how you describe what you do. Well, that's, that's really interesting because I think I've always struggled to put the nail in what I actually do. So Lifelong I, journey. Yeah, it has been. And I'd, I'd probably describe myself as an adventurer because I feel that that is broad enough to cover lots of different things I've done because there are professional mountaineers, there are professional adventurers, there are all, all sorts of different people who specialise in, in particular elements. Whereas I've done a little bit of everything. And I think that with the idea of, of general adventuring, is it's about getting out of your comfort zone. And therefore it doesn't really matter whether or not it's up a mountain, or it's in a desert, or it's going across an ocean. It's just doing something which is not the everyday to test yourself. I just love that though. I'm an adventurer. That is a job. That is an amazing thing. I'm not quite sure whether or not HMRC would see it as a specific <laughs> job, but it at least means that it gives me the opportunity to just do different things and to do things differently. So, Jake, take us back. How on earth do you make that into your career? Give us a bit of a timeline of how that's all sort of worked out for you. So, so I grew up on a farm, loved being outside, was always outside building dens and things. And when I was at primary school, when I was about 12, a friend invited me down for a few days climbing in Swanage in Dorset and I had just the most fantastic time and I guess you could probably say it was my lackadaisical academic attitude that got me into this rather weird and wonderful and slightly illogical sport where the idea is just to get a little bit higher than you were a moment ago. When I went on to my secondary school they had a full-time outdoor activity department so the minute I could give up rugby football and cricket I did and just spent all my time climbing, canoeing, scuba diving, Duke of Edinburgh, CCF just generally being outside and, and having fun. Getting stuck into just anything that you could. Absolutely. And when I was 14, so still quite early on, I read a magazine article about a young British climber called Sundeep Dillon, who was 28 years old and he'd just become the youngest person in the world to complete a challenge called the Seven Summits. And the Seven Summits is the quest for the highest mountain on every continent. And so if you can imagine this 
cocky, naive 14-year-old, have never climbed a mountain, have never climbed anywhere outside of England, I thought, well, he's 28, I'm 14, 28, old man. He's ancient. I can beat this, no problem. And set my sights on that. So, and then take us from there, did you do it? Yeah, so I, in my GCSE year, I went off to Kilimanjaro, the highest mountain in Africa, and climbed that. I, I reached the summit to watch the sunrise on the 1st of January 2000, so the Millennium Sunrise, which I think was quite an impressive start to both my Seven Summits aspirations, but also the most awesome New Year's resolution. Yeah, like that puts the rest of it to shame there. I'm like, oh, I've got to go to the gym more, you know, as I'm sitting, scoffing my champagne. <laughs> Dol, so tell me, how old were you when you did that? So that was, that was 15. I then started making my way through the Seven Summits. So off to South America, to Aconcagua, which I soloed when I was 18, so just after I left school, up to Alaska, to Mount Denali, uh, which is very close to the Arctic Circle, to Mount Elbrus in Russia, to Australia, to the Antarctic, and then, of course, with six of the seven summits under my belt. Uh, by this point, I was now at Bristol University doing environmental science, only one left, the biggest, the scariest. Mount Everest. It's, but it's like the time it takes as well. These are like huge missions just in themselves. So did you, when you set out, have like a time scale of how long you'd thought? I mean, you wanted to get it done, but that takes time. I, I think what really helped was setting my sights on trying to become the youngest person to do it, because not only did that give me a an age to get to, but inevitably, as I was getting older and starting to climb some, the record was being beaten and beaten and beaten. So I was getting older, the record was getting younger. So I hoped that I would have this opportunity to try and at least attempt the seventh before the record passed me. It's like you can watch the clock sort of ticking. But also how you fund that. Like, talk me through that, how you make... These are huge, huge missions. They are. They're big trips. They're not cheap. They also are not quick as well. You know, it's not a, a long weekend away. Yeah. It's, it's Everest was 10 weeks the Antarctic was four weeks. And that's not including training, I imagine, and things like that, or is it? Uh, no, that definitely doesn't include training, but perhaps that's a separate line of conversation <laughs> yeah. with the training. Uh, but with, with the funding, I was a, a student at the time. My student loan didn't go very far towards paying for oxygen cylinders and Sherpas. So it was a case of having to fundraise and just going out everywhere I could to try and ruthlessly exploit my network and networks of networks to find people who'd be willing to spare a, a few quid to invest in an expedition. As somebody once told me, the definition of an expedition is a holiday that somebody else pays for. It's great, though. As you're talking there, it just makes me think of these kind of skills that you're learning. Obviously, doing stuff like you're doing, there's unbounded amount of different skills, but that kind of like marketing, fundraising, the sort of more business side of it... Is kind of you wouldn't put, a, put you wouldn't automatically think that would be what you'd put with it. Absolutely, I think in many ways, it's setting out to to try and fundraise for expeditions is it needs you to be incredibly entrepreneurial, because ultimately you are looking for people to invest in an idea and a dream. The only difference is that you're not really giving away specific equity in a in a company and. There's a big chance of failure, uh, of not getting to the top, but actually there's also a potential chance of it all going very wrong. That was exactly like entrepreneurs, but I mean with a, ve- with a sort of extreme version of it, I guess, Ab- isn't it? Absolutely, and I think that what has really helped me in the past with fundraising has been about making those personal connections and those personal contacts. And my advice to anybody listening who thinks, oh, this would be brilliant, I want to do this, I'm going to start writing letters, is if you start a sponsorship letter, dear sir or ma'am, it's never going to work. Don't waste the whatever first class stamp costs these days. Don't waste that. Go and 
you know, create a, a diagram of who you know and then who they know and just get round and see them. Yeah, and also it's that thing, it's really, we talk about it so much, personal, you know, real connections with people, whatever it is you're doing. I mean, again, coming back to the actual practicalities of these amazing expeditions you're doing, it's your connections with other human beings, really, isn't it? And trying to get them enthused or connected and whatever it is you're doing. Absolutely, and it, and it ties very much into to what I do now as a, as a day job. So I work for a company called the Inspirational Development Group. We're a management development consultancy working all around the world, and we essentially work with our clients to help their people get better, so improve business performance through people. And with I have a military background as well, I'm, I'm a member of a, a reserve unit based in the southwest. And the connection, it doesn't really matter whether or not you are in the Himalayas, Helmand province, or in an appropriate business environment, starting with H, that actually, although your output might be very different, the challenges and the opportunities around people are exactly the same, about how you motivate people, how you encourage them to do things which might be pushing them out of their comfort zones, whether or not that's you as a leader or you as a follower that's a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, it's amazing though, isn't it, to think about. And it's just these completely different worlds, but so similar and such. Absolutely. And, and I, I know that I got the job I have today through my mountaineering background and my military experience. Yeah. Dal, I mean, it seems a silly question to ask you and you've climbed these incredible things. What the biggest challenges that you faced? I guess I mean it more in terms of pursuing this career path. What, what has been the most tricky thing about going down this route so i think that the the hardest thing is always about you are only as good as your last successful expedition so from my point of view i've i've cancelled or postponed more trips due to lack of funding or political reasons i couldn't get into a country than i have due to bad weather on a hill or or not being fit enough that's so tricky though because you know factors like that are completely out of your control in terms of weather aren't they i mean these are huge things that, you know, challenges are one thing, but when they're challenges, you literally can't do anything about. Of, of course, and um, you, know, you have the opportunity to, wherever possible, control the controllables, but of course, on any mountain, on any adventure, that there are going to be certain variables that you just have no control over, whether or not that's the weather, the conditions on the mountain. Sometimes it's the other team members, because yeah. I think pe- people would love to love to think that you pick everybody individually it's it's like something out of britain's got talent you, you know the buzzer uh, as to who you select and who you don't but often you are a group of like-minded individuals but from very different backgrounds thrown together in a pursuit for a common goal and you have to build a team very quickly like it or not and almost like the person or not and i've been very fortunate i've had mo- the vast majority of my expeditions i've done with with fantastic people who've become lifelong friends but there have of course been one or two where there have been either team members or or groups of team members who haven't naturally got on with that well and the result of the expedition has been affected by those team dynamics that's so hard that's so tricky but again comes back to all that people skills my god talk about a way to hone them you know in the middle of nowhere with someone that you're finding difficult to get on with in such sort of tight, tense circumstance. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's very rare in any walk of life that we get to always choose every single person that we work with. If you're in, you know, in a business, in a company, uh, in a sports team. Well, exactly. You definitely <laughs> don't get to choose your family uh, or maybe that one, one key person of your family. Um, but, uh, but actually, it's the, it's the same on the mountain that ultimately you have to make the best with what you've got and therefore you've got to put individual differences aside for this pursuit of a common goal 
together and the selection, the maintenance of of that aim. Because ultimately, the without being melodramatic, your team members are literally your lifeline. And that if something goes wrong, you have to rely on them to, to help you out. It's literally like you know, teamwork at the nth degree. Um, sweet, tell us about what you're up to now. You're about to set off or building up towards a very exciting new adventure. I mean, no rest. Your family must just be like, God, can we just have a quiet weekend? I Yes, I, I'm very fortunate that my wife is very long-suffering and, and my daughter is... Well, she's nearly two. She's a little bit young to really understand what's going on. But uh, this summer, I'm off to Pakistan for my second attempt to try and climb K2. Now, K2 is the second highest mountain in the world. It's 8,611 metres, or 28,251 feet in old money, and is on the border between Pakistan and China. And what I'm really pleased about is that I'm doing K2 on behalf of the charity Walking with the Wounded. Now, people might be familiar with the trips to the South Pole and the North Pole uh, that Walking with the Wounded has previously done. But um, what it really aims to do is to help wounded ex-service people transition from the military life into civilian life. And so through the expedition, I'm trying to raise funds to help aid that for a lot of these incredibly brave people to continue on to the next challenge of their lives. God, I mean, that in itself, we're talking earlier about the fundraising, your fundraising for the trip, your fundraising charity, it's amazing. I mean, that is quite the challenge in itself. I think, again, going back to that, it's a flippant comment I made about an expedition being a holiday that somebody else pays for. I'm doing what I love. I'm incredibly fortunate. I've got some fantastic sponsors on board who are helping to fund the expedition side of things. And therefore, the only thing that I feel I should do is to be doing separate fundraising for charity to to give something back. Yeah, amazing. It's amazing. Now, Everest, obviously the biggest. We've currently got the Everest season going on at the moment because there's a lot of stuff in the press about it. There have, unfortunately, been a few deaths on it. But Everest, if you look at the statistics over the years, you've got about 7,300 ascents and about 250, 280 deaths. Of course, each of those incredibly sad and tragic. But it gives a percentage of about 3.5% summits to death rate, which is not good. No. Compare that to K2. I mean, under, understatement. Of yeah. It's horrible. Compare that to K2, where there have only been, in the history of climbing on K2, 350 ascents and at least 80 deaths. God. So that is a, a summit to death ratio of nearly 25 but Jake, you say that so calmly, and we've just talked about your family and your kid. I mean, without wanting to get personal here, or kind of wanting to get personal, that is actually pretty serious. How do you get into a place where your mind deals with something like that, or do you just ignore it? You, you absolutely don't ignore it. You, in any scenario, you, if there is inherent risk, you, the worst thing to do is ignore it. As many people would say, and we sit in the films and things, but in military circumstances, being scared is a good thing because it makes you recognise what's going on around you. You're alert. Exactly. Controlling that fear and being able to channel, channeling it into a really positive direction, that is what the strength how you turn a, a, a negative into a positive. And do you think that's through practice? How do you hone that skill? I think it's through experience. I think it's part of personal resilience. Resilience is a big buzzword at the moment. Um, businesses, organisations are doing more with less, for less. So we have to be resilient in what we do. So we have to have self-efficacy. We have to believe that we stand a chance of being able to do it. No one would set out to do anything if they didn't think they stood a chance. Think of the lottery, for example. We buy tickets because 
we think we're in with a chance of winning that jackpot. We don't buy them because we think we might win 20 quid. We buy them because we're aiming towards that however many millions. And it's the same with, with climbing a mountain, that you set out, obviously to get to the top, but of course real success and definition of success on any expedition, whatever it might be, is about getting to the other side and coming home safe. And if you happen to get to the top, get a record, get a cool photo, that's a bonus. That yeah, really but is. the balance between those two is hard because, of course, really right deep within you, that's what you're wanting because that's why you do what you do. But, you know, the balance of those two, I guess, is... It, it is, and, and so you have almost the angel and the devil on your shoulder at any one time with... And I don't know which way round it is. I, probably one would hope that it's the angel saying, look after yourself, be careful, and the devil's going, come on, you can do it, another, another step. Sometimes those roll reverse. And sometimes it's the devil saying, come on, you turn around, you know, it's too difficult, it's too hard, and actually you need to dig deep to, to keep on going. But the key thing with a, certainly on a mountain is, is knowing when that, that crook's point is at which you turn back. So at what point do you cross the, the point of no return? Again, your uh, own boundaries... Isn't it? Absolutely, and it's it's an often, perhaps overused uh, cliche, but this sense of getting to the summit being only half the journey is absolutely true. If you used up one hundred percent of your energy getting to the top, and you've got nothing for the descent, well, unfortunately, the the history and the mountain sides are littered with people who've fallen foul of that. So you have to ensure that you have some juice left in the tank the return journey. God, Jake, I just find it so fascinating. It is literally like a different world. Uh, but I'm conscious we've gone away. Let's go back to K2. So, yeah, we're talking about this expedition that you're heading off in the summer with these terrifying statistics, and you're still going. Oh, my God. Yeah, massive, massively risky. So, so it, it has risk associated with it. I, I don't think that I would count myself within those statistics, not that I think I'm above or beyond those, but I think, again, it's that self-efficacy of, of believing in myself that I will make the right decisions at the right time. Of course, who knows what will happen? But in the same way that there are risks around us every single day, we have to believe that we can make it through the day. And part of that will be the, the trust of my teammates. I'm very fortunate to be climbing with my climbing partner from Everest. So we're getting the old band back together <laughs> 11 years after we climbed Everest together. Amazing. Uh, so I hope we still get on. Yeah, it could I'm be sure, awkward. I'm sure, I'm sure we will. Which, which is fantastic. In the team, we have five Westerners, four Brits and a French-Canadian, uh, and we have two Sherpas who are coming from Nepal. The two Sherpas between them have three ascents of K2, wow. which is amazing, unprecedented experience to have as part of the team. Now, actually, on the, the other five of us, I'm the only one with experience on K2 itself. In 2009, I got to about 7,700 metres, but turned back due to poor snow conditions. In the end, nobody summited at all that year, and one person was killed. But the rest of the team are incredibly experienced, multiple summits of 8,000 metre peaks, and I have a really good feeling that we'll just have a great time together. Oh my gosh, it's so infectious. It's amazing. I'm there on one hand thinking, oh my gosh, this is so full on. And then like you hear that and it's just the experience of being part of that, like that team, it comes back to that, I guess. And I think that you're obviously getting this from me now, but what I want is for people all over the place to, to feel part of this expedition, even if you don't know me at all. But uh, during the expedition, I'm going to be blogging regularly. I'm going to be sending back photos. Photos. I'm even going to have this little GPS tracker on me so you can see where I am at any one point. That's Probably really somebody good. looking online going, Jake, you spent an awful lot of time in the toilet tent. <laughs> what are you doing? Not uh, such a good day for you. <laughs> uh, and you can find that on K2 
2016.com. Amazing. God, it's going to be great. And just be able to bring it to life a little bit, you know, for us back, you know, going about our everyday. What a wonderful thing to think they can just go on and see what you're up to in just this different world at the very same time. Uh, Jake, I'd just love to hear, what advice do you wish you'd been given before you started off all these adventures, before you followed your own kind of what has now become your, your career? What advice do you wish you'd been given at that time? So I actually think back to a piece of advice I was given and it was when I was at school and I had this the most fantastic climbing instructor called Rupert Rosedale and he was brilliant and it was really due to his infectious enthusiasm of climbing and just generally the outdoors that really pushed me into getting into climbing. And what was so incredibly sad was that he was killed climbing in Scotland in uh, at New Year in 2009, just after I'd got back from my first attempt at K2. And whilst he was an inspirational man and he died what he loved doing, of course, there is absolutely part of me and, and of course, you know, his friends, his family, everyone who knew him at school, which always recognising how incredibly tragic it was, but how much we all learned from him and how much he's inspired us and and to be perfectly honest whenever I am on a mountain I hope wherever he is he's looking down and going well done my boy oh god it makes me emotional it really makes me emotional what an amazing it's such a kind of bittersweet thing that that you're sharing that with him in such a different way than perhaps you might do amazing when I was 16 he and I and some other people from school went off to South America to attempt Aconcagua which is one of the seven summits the highest mountain in South America now unfortunately due to a number of reasons none of us got to the top now, this was potentially going to be my second seven summits. I was completely focused, completely aimed at this. I probably naively thought to myself, seven summits, seven mountains, seven expeditions, easy peasy, just smash them out. But Naivety fa- Yeah, absolutely. Failing, as I saw it, on the, first, on the second mountain, going, well, that's it. I give up. This is pointless. And I remember sitting in Buenos Aires Airport with Rupert, him almost doing a, a bit of an exit interview at the back end of the expedition, and him saying... Don't worry. The joy of expeditioning and the joy of these adventures, it really is the taking part. The summit is merely a bonus. Think about the experience that you've gathered from these trips. That is what helps build you. And ultimately, we don't get any better by continuing succeeding. It's the bruises, the knocks, the bumps, the scrapes that we get along the way by, by falling down and having things go wrong that make us appreciate, A, what victory really does taste like when it happens and appreciate that but also that we have the strength of mind to overcome the things that we can't plan for and that we wouldn't necessarily choose whatever they may be because ultimately nobody's life is ever going to be perfect we're always going to have those elements that don't quite go to plan i think you know when we're on our deathbeds when we look back it's probably how we've overcome the challenges that we've had rather than the champagne popping from the top of mental, physical or metaphorical mountains that are going to be our greatest memories. I absolutely love that bit of advice and actually definitely have to put my hand up that I've been wielding it around since I chatted to Jake. Don't you just think it's brilliant? Such a refreshing way to look at all of this stuff and I just need to practice it. You know, it's like a mantra 
just need to remind ourselves of this, right? That is what we should be focusing on. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't shout that from the rooftops more. I really couldn't. Thank you so much to Jake. Don't forget if you want to follow him and keep an eye on what he's up to. As I said, he is off. He's set off now. We recorded that chat a few weeks ago. Depends when you listen to this, obviously. But around the time that this was recorded, he is now heading off to K2. He's all over our Twitter or, you know, there is that thing of just typing Jake Mayer into Google. Just saying. Uh, so big thanks to Jake for chatting to us this week. Next week, as I got confused with last week, we are chatting to the founder of an incredible charity who help young people achieve their potential, mainly through jobs and work, but through all sorts of different ways. And it's a real cracker. So really looking forward to sharing that with you next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Find us on iTunes if you haven't subscribed already. And if you've got any questions or fancy featuring on these, get in touch at Passion Pods on Twitter is usually the best way to find us. Um, just love hearing what you're up to. The more unusual, the better. And can't wait to see you next Monday. We're getting close to 100, aren't we? Next week, Passion Pod 97. See you then. Mm-hmm.